0: Celebrations might look somewhat different this year, but there is a great opportunity for us to celebrate God's goodness in our lives. We have a lot to be thankful for. Uh, We're in the middle of a series called Rhythms of Grace, where we've been exploring a number of spiritual disciplines together. Last week, we looked at the discipline of fasting, and today we are looking at the discipline of feasting. It seems like that's appropriate on a weekend weekend. Like this, when many of us will hopefully be doing a a lot of feasting. But as I thought about these two ideas, as I thought about these different ideas of fasting and feasting, I was reminded of the words from the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 where it says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. So there is a time for fasting, but there is also a time for feasting and for celebrating. And in fact, you don't need an occasion occasion like Thanksgiving to celebrate and to feast because of God's goodness. So I will tell you that I'm going to go a little bit beyond the idea of just eating lots of food as a way of thinking about feasting, but we will talk a good deal about food and drink as well. So if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're going to look at a short passage this morning, just four verses, uh, verses 7 to 10 of that chapter. But let me just pray as we begin. Lord, now as we turn our attention to your word, we do pray for ears that are open to hear the truths that you want to say to us. We pray for hearts that will be made glad because of what your words to us this morning. So uh, we commit ourselves to you and we give our attention to you and to your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've got that passage before you, Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we're going to look, as I said, at verses 7 to 10, and this is what these verses say. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Well, it's kind of an interesting passage, right? I mean, if you just were to take verse 7 and read that to the average person or say those words to the average person on the street, go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, and then ask them, where do those words come from? I imagine it would be very unlikely that people would expect that those words come from the pages of the Bible. And I think that's too bad. I think it's too bad that so many of the good pleasures in life get disassociated from God. In our day, we talk about guilty pleasures, right? Those things that maybe we shouldn't do, but, you know, we kind of enjoy them. We derive enjoyment from them. And many people have this idea that the only pleasures in life are the guilty ones. The only real pleasures are the ones that God would somehow frown upon. There are lots of people who think of God as sort of a cosmic killjoy. In his book, Pure Pleasure, Why Christians Feel So Bad About Feeling Good, Gary Thomas says this, the fact is, I grew up thinking the devil wants me to do whatever feels good and God wants me to deny anything that appeals to me, except of course going to church, praying and reading the Bible. Now, I've talked with enough people over the years to to know that he wasn't alone with those feelings. Lots of people feel like that. And this passage has something to teach us about the kind of pleasure we were meant to enjoy and experience on earth. Now, I'm not advocating a life of self-indulgence and hedonism. But feasting is a rhythm of grace. Christians ought to regularly celebrate the good gifts of God. And so the first thing I think we ought to understand from this passage is simply that God wants us to enjoy his good gifts. Verse 7 is actually a call to action. If you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you will find over and over again uh, things like this. The preacher telling us, look, I've noticed this, or I've observed this, or here's what I've seen under the sun. It's kind of his observations. But there's a dramatic shift here in verse 7. There's a, a force and an urgency to what he says. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. Now, we'll get into the specifics of what that means in a, in a couple of minutes, but before we get there, I just want to point out the general truth that the call to enjoy God's good gifts is not stated passively. It's something we're supposed to actively pursue and enjoy. Pleasure is God's gift to us. He created this world as a place of beauty and enjoyment. He created us with senses like sight and hearing and smell and taste and touch. All as a way to enhance our enjoyment. It's the devil who wants us to relate to God's gifts in the wrong way. And this has been his strategy from the very beginning of time. If you think back to the creation account, you will remember God creates this incredibly lush garden with all manner of fruit trees that were described as being pleasant to the eye and good for food. So it wasn't just that they provided food, but they provided food that looked good and tasted even better. And so God gives this command, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. First comes the provision Then comes the prohibition. But you will also remember that the serpent comes along, and he questions Eve in this way. He says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And you can see how he twists it. God's command focuses on his provision. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden." The serpent's question focuses on the prohibition. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See, from the beginning of time, God has wanted us to enjoy his good gifts. And Satan has wanted us to relate to God's gifts in the wrong way. Now, I know I've shared my fondness for C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, before. Many times, in fact... It was written in the 1940s, but I think it's probably the best book on spiritual warfare that I've ever read. If you've read the book, you know it's an imagined account of a series of letters written by a senior demon, screw taped to his nephew, a junior demon named Wormwood. And in one of those letters, he instructs his nephew like this. He says, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in a sense on the enemy's ground. I know we've won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. In another place, he goes on to say this about God. He's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade, or only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He has filled His world with pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without His minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's of any use to us. Now look, there is no doubt that God's gifts can be twisted and abused. But at the core, we need to remember that all of these things are gifts from God And are given for our enjoyment. And in this passage in Ecclesiastes 9, it it highlights really three specific gifts that we ought to enjoy. Firstly, we're told to enjoy simple pleasures like eating, drinking, and celebrating. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Now, it's interesting that some commentators sort of take these verses negatively or they treat them as maybe cynical comments from the preacher. You know, go ahead, eat and drink, you're just going to die anyway. But I think the second half of verse 7 should disabuse us of that idea. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart because God has already approved what you do. See, the basis of our ability to enjoy these gifts from God is that they already have God's stamp of approval on them because they're part of His good creation. Psalm 104 expresses praise to God for these kinds of gifts in this way. Here's what it says. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So far from just saying, you know, these gifts are tolerable. It's actually saying, no, these, these verses praise God for all of his good gifts that we ought to enjoy. We ought to feast. Now, I know this verse or verses like this raise the question of alcohol consumption for some people. I understand that, and I want to be sensitive to it. Up until the last 10 years of his life, my dad was an alcoholic, so I've seen the, the destruction that can come from the abuse of alcohol Some of you have convictions about alcohol. It means that that you never partake of it. Some of you may have had past struggles with it, and so you don't ever want to partake of it. And I would certainly not try to convince you otherwise, but I just think we need to be careful with how we deal with wanting our convictions to be everyone else's convictions. In the book of 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul gives a warning about false teachers who had crept into the church, and he describes them as those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So if one way to relate wrongly to God's gifts is to abuse them, another way to relate wrongly to them is to reject them altogether and not receive them as his good gifts to us. Now, there's a time and a place to apply Paul's instructions about all things being permissible, but not all things being beneficial. But by and large, this is not the approach the Bible takes towards God's good gifts. In any case, the main focus of what the, the preacher is telling us is not about whether we drink wine or not. What he's driving at is that we ought to receive simple pleasures like eating and drinking with great joy. Now, those of you who know me, already know this, but my favorite drink in all the worlds is a grande five-pump, no-water, non-fat, extra-hot chai, right? I mean, this is something I consume almost every day, or pretty much every day, sometimes twice a day, okay? Look, there's just something about that combination of sweet and spicy that makes my taste buds really happy. And I think it's ridiculous to pay $4.88 for a drink But I often think about this verse as I consume it. Go, eat your banana bread with joy, and drink your chai with a merry heart. We ought to feast upon God's good gifts. Now, if we really want a good example of someone who lived by the reality of these verses, go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, we don't need to look any further than Jesus. A number of years ago, I, I read a book by Tim Chester entitled, A Meal with Jesus, Discovering Grace, Community, and Mission Around the Table. And in that book, he asks the question, how would you complete the sentence, the Son of Man came? There's actually three ways that the New Testament completes that sentence. The Son of Man came. In Mark chapter 10, it says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Luke chapter 19, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But there's a third way that the Gospels complete that sentence. In Luke chapter 7, we read this, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, the first two of those verses describe why Jesus came, right? He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to seek and save the lost. The third of those verses describes how Jesus came. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And Tim Chester's book is really just a study of the meals that Jesus partakes in in the gospel of Luke. And if you've read through Luke's gospel, or maybe the next time you read it, you just want to pay attention to this. How many of the stories involve Jesus eating? So in Luke chapter 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at the home of Levi. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In Luke 10, Jesus eats at the home of Martha and Mary. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns a Pharisee or the Pharisees and the teachers of the law while at a meal. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their meals rather than just their friends. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus. In Luke 22, we have the account of the Last Supper where Jesus eats with his disciples. And in Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal with the two disciples. He meets on the road to Emmaus and then later eats fish with the disciples in Jerusalem. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, feasting. New Testament scholar Robert Karras concludes in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Tim Chester describes Jesus' strategy like this. His mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship round a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. That's a beautiful picture to keep in mind as we think about the simple pleasures like eating and drinking and how they can be done to the glory of God. One more simple pleasure related to that, that is the idea of celebrating. Listen again to verse 8, it says, Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. So white garments were the dress-up clothes of the ancient Near East. That's what you put on for special occasions, you'd get dressed in white. To put oil on your head was to basically douse yourself in perfume or cologne. These are the kinds of things you did to get ready for a party. And the writer here tells us, let not oil be lacking on your head. Let your garments be always white. And we need these kinds of events as part of the rhythm of our lives. They're rhythms of grace. You need to get dressed up once in a while and go dancing with your spouse or go out to dinner with your friends for a good meal. You need to celebrate events like birthdays and anniversaries and other milestones. And the Old Testament has a rich tradition of celebration. I love some of the descriptions we find in the Old Testament of some of the parties that they have. I love this description of the party that Solomon threw when he finished the construction of the temple in Israel and dedicated it to the Lord. Here's what it says in the book of 1 Kings. So Solomon held the feast at that time and all Israel with him, a great assembly from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days, on the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king and went to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant and to Israel, his people. That party lasted a full week, celebrating. Or we could think of what happened when the Israelites came back, came back to, to Israel after being exiled in Babylon for 70 years. And when they returned, they returned to a country. That was a shell of its former self. A lot of downcast faces. And the priest, Ezra, read the law to them. And many of the people were grieved because they knew that this was all the result of their own rebellion against God. But listen to what Nehemiah and Ezra and the priests said to the people. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Listen, my hope, even application-wise, as you leave this place today or as you, you know, turn your, your live stream off, It's that you go rejoicing because of all that God has done for you, that you feast on his goodness. I think there's something instructive about this for us as individuals and for us as a church. Again, as I mentioned off the top, in Ecclesiastes it tells us there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And we need both of those. Solomon's party lasted for 7 days. Some churches feel guilty if they party for 7 minutes. Now look, if you've been around Crossridge for any length of time, then you will know that we promote things like community groups. It's great to have regular rhythms where we get together and we study the Bible together, but I think some of my favorite times with a community group are the potlucks. You know, where we just sit around enjoying a meal together, hanging out. So, I love this church. I mean, I, I look forward to Sunday mornings. I know it's different right now. but There's a lot to love about our church. I mean, the preaching's fantastic, right? But look, I, I also really like when we do pizza for lunch and then go bowling. I love when we do our community events in the local parks and we eat together and share a meal. I like. Our fall launch parties where there's food in the tents outside. I love our baptism Sundays where we've got cinnamon buns. Those cinnamon buns are so good in the morning On, on those Sundays. I like going to the pumpkin patch where we have hot dogs. Celebrations are an important part of life and an important part of community. So we need to enjoy these simple pleasures, eating, drinking, and celebrating all to the glory of God. Well, let's move on. We need to enjoy God's gifts, the simple pleasures like eating and drinking, and also relational pleasures like marriage. Now, if you read Ecclesiastes back in chapter 4, you will will find that there's a section devoted to the importance of relationships, companionship in general. But this verse here in verse 9 points us to one specific relationship where we can find joy. It says, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Marriage is a great thing. So I had the privilege this summer to perform or officiate three weddings for couples from Crossridge. Weddings look different in the midst of this COVID season. But they're supposed to be a picture of both the seriousness and the celebration, that is, marriage. On the one hand, a wedding is a serious matter. I mean, you are committing yourself for the rest of your life to an exclusive relationship. But on the other hand, the wedding ceremony and reception are a pure celebration of the fact that you've found someone you want to spend the rest of your life with. That's a good reason to party. The Bible has a lot to say about how we're supposed to love one another as husbands and wives. In the New Testament, husbands are told very specifically how to love their wives. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And it is good for us. To meditate on verses like that about all that we're called to in marriage, sacrificial love. But this verse in Ecclesiastes has something more basic in mind when it says, "Enjoy life with the wife whom you love." And it's been my observation that many marriages fall apart due to simply to neglect. There's no dating. There's no romance. There's no sex. And there's certainly no joy. Too many couples end up as joyless roommates instead of lifelong lovers. I know I've shared this story with you before. It's just a picture I've kept in my mind for a long time. When I used to commute to Burnaby each day, that is actually when I got into the financially unsound habit of stopping at Starbucks every day. And there was a Starbucks that I would stop in on Marine Drive on my way into work. And there was this stretch of time where every morning I would walk in there at like 7 a.m. There was a couple sitting close to the door, so close to each other, whispering in each other's ears, touching each other, giggling, you know, all of that stuff. What is the conclusion you make when you see that at a Starbucks at 7 a.m.? This is a couple that's not married to each other, right? I mean, they're probably having an affair of some type. Like my wife and I are close, but we don't go to Starbucks at 7 a.m. for a cuddle session. But you've no doubt seen the opposite as well, right? Couple sitting in a coffee shop or a restaurant, kind of vacantly staring out the window, not even interacting with each other. And what's the conclusion you make when you see that? Right? They've been married for a long time. I mean, it's like the joy has just gone out. Now, again, I'm not saying you, you, you have to have the Snuggle Fest at Starbucks. Starbucks. But if you are married, you need to pay attention to this verse. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. If you neglect your marriage, you will drift apart from your spouse. Now, you can spiritualize things all you want, but this is the reality. And Gary Thomas puts it this way. He says, if I ignore my marriage, my wife and I will drift apart. It doesn't matter whether I ignore my marriage to prepare a sermon Homeschool a child, teach a Bible study, or lower my golf handicap. If I ignore my marriage, we'll drift and will become more susceptible to an affair or a divorce. This verse says, enjoy life with your wife whom you love. So let me just ask you, what is the level of joy in your marriage right now? Now I feel like I'm at a bit of an advantage because Ilona and I just celebrated our twenty-fifth anniversary this past week. Now, we weren't able to do the kind of trip that we, you know, would have liked to do, but we were able to get away to the island for a few days without kids. And it was fun just to hang out by the pool. I mean, I got a sunburn in October. It was fun to go for walks in the morning to the bakery and get something for breakfast. It was fun to go paddleboarding together. It was fun to get dressed up and go out to dinner together. It was an enjoyable time. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of your life. Whatever season you're in, enjoy it. We could stop there, but while we're on the subject of relational pleasures in marriage, let me just say something about sex, and I I know I should have warned you up front. This is sort of the PG-13 part of the message. But this is something I think does not get taught on enough in the church. It's almost like we've given this over to the world, this pleasure entirely. So we'll talk about the evils of sex outside of marriage, but seldom talk about the the great celebration and joy of sex within marriage. Sex is one of the pure pleasures that God has given us in marriage. And the Bible is not shy or bashful about this. As part of a warning against adultery, and we looked at this passage in the summer, Proverbs 5 gives us this counsel. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? doesn't get much more practical than that, does it? In the New Testament, Paul gives this very specific instruction to husbands and wives related to sex. He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. A fulfilling sex life is one of the safeguards against sexual temptation. This is part of what it means to fortify ourselves with pleasure. So we're told to enjoy simple pleasures, eating, drinking, celebrating. Relational pleasures like marriage. The third area that gets highlighted here, I'll spend just very little time here, is just challenging pleasures like work and service. Now, maybe that sounds like the least of all the pleasures. Maybe not like a pleasure at all. I know work can be a challenge, just the day in, day out routine, the monotony of it all, the annoying coworker, difficult customers or boss, unsatisfying pay. Work can be a challenge for a variety of reasons, but it can also be a source of joy, something we take delight in. And verse 9 ends by talking about the toil at which we toil under the sun. And then verse 10 begins by saying, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Some of you might not actually like the job you have, or maybe you don't like certain aspects of it, and all jobs have challenges. I mean, I often say that ministry would be great if it wasn't for all the people. That's a joke. (laughs) Love you guys. Look, all jobs have their challenges, but you can still find joy in your job. And part of the way we can find joy in our work is remembering we were created to work. I know we've been over this before, but work is not the curse. It's the frustration we experience in our work that's part of the curse. That's why Genesis 2.15, before the fall, says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We were created to work. All of us. And so when I say work, I'm not just thinking about you know the the work you get paid to do. Your current job might be in the home, raising your children. That's an extremely important job. You might be retired, but that doesn't exhaust your usefulness. We we can take joy in our work because we were created to work. Can also take joy in working hard and doing a job well. This verse says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. I mean, it's a great feeling to know you've created something or done something that's benefited others. You can take joy in the simple fact that our work allows us to provide for our family or gives us the means to enjoy other pleasures. Enjoy it. Feast. Most of all, though, I think we can take joy when we do any job to the glory of God. Colossians 3.23 says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance As your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. And that's true whether you're a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker. Now, we've spent a lot of time just talking about the fact God wants us to enjoy His good gifts. We also need to remember that God wants us to know the difference between good things and ultimate things. All of the things highlighted in this passage are good things. But they're only temporary things. That's why at the end of verse 10, it reminds us. When it says, For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. It's talking about the grave. Food and drink, work and even marriage are ultimately only temporary things. Again, they're all good things, but they're not ultimate things. And when we treat them as ultimate things, we end up worshiping the gift instead of the giver. So some people live for food. I mean, they're, they're foodies. They just, they, they love it. it. Controls their lives. Paul tells us in the book of Philippians, their God is their stomach. Food is good. Gluttony is not. Enjoying food is a good thing. Using food to satisfy some void in our life is not good. Some people become addicted to alcohol. I mean, they can't seem to face up to life's problems or have a good time without it. Drinking your wine with a merry heart is good. Drunkenness and all that goes with it is bad. The marriage relationship and sex are are good. They're God's gifts to us. But you don't have to look very far to find examples of where people will find their satisfaction or seek satisfaction apart from God's design. And do great damage to themselves and others. Work, too, is good provided that it doesn't consume us. Work is good. Workaholism is not good. If we don't take the rest God designed for us, it's an indication that work's become too important. So Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, Sin is not just the doing of bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance purpose, and happiness than your relationship with God. So some Christians will respond to that knowledge with self-denial. Rather than let the pleasures lead them astray, they just deny them altogether. I just won't participate. And they follow the mistake made by the Colossians. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul says that approach is basically useless in the face of temptation. So there's a better way for us to respond, to think about these pleasures, this feasting, We ought to see these pleasures as pointing us to a greater reality. Philip Ryken put it like this. He said, our earthly pleasures are telling us that we were made for another world. Every honest day's work brings us one day closer to our eternal rest. Every good meal is a reminder that we have been invited to the last and best of all banquets. Every God-centered party anticipates the heavenly celebration that will never end. Right? And likewise, marriage is a pointer to something beyond marriage. That's why the New Testament repeatedly tells us marriage is an illustration of Christ's love for the church. It's actually pointing to something even better. And the proper response then to all of these good gifts of God is celebration and worship of the God who has given them to us. So even as you have your feast this weekend Remember the Lord your God who gave you all of this. I love John Piper's famous line or sentence where he says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So let's find our satisfaction in the God who has given this all to us. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your grace that even as we have these past two weeks talked about both fasting and and feasting, Lord, we pray our lives would be a reflection of that, that we would know the time for fasting, but also the time for feasting. And even as we, as a country, stop this week to, uh, to celebrate Thanksgiving, Lord, we know who to be thankful for. It's all from you. And so as we enjoy your good gifts, would our hearts be filled with gratitude to you for your goodness? Would we not abuse your gifts, but would we see them as pointers to you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.